Welcome to another edition of Wake Island. Gina Frangello is the author of Blow Your House Down, a story about family, feminism, and treason. She's also the author of four books of fiction, and her novel, A Life in Men, is currently under production with Charlie Theron's production company for Netflix, which will star Kristen Stewart and Riley Kilo. And I don't think it gets much better than that. She's currently the creative nonfiction editor at the Los Angeles Review of Books. Blow Your House Down is an intense story about escape and reinvention. It's about creating beauty from ruin and shaping the messy wreckage of life into what you desire. I think you guys are going to get a kick out of this. I certainly learned a lot from Gina. I think she's got a tremendous amount of wisdom and knowledge that I'm happy to share with you as well. So here it is, my conversation with Gina Frangello. Yeah, I mean, I got married over Zoom, so I understand. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, we truly did. Yeah, yeah. We uh, we got married in March when the pandemic had first begun, March of 2020. And um, I had been planning a, a big literary festival out in Bombay Beach called Bombay Beach Lit Week. And there were going to be like over 100 writers, musicians, artists, environmentalists, filmmakers, et cetera, like all coming, everything was free, all free programming. I had arranged it like, just because I felt like it, like I wasn't sponsored. I had no, you know, no funding. And I'd spent months arranging it. And just right when we were about to start it, the pandemic hit um, and we had to call it off. And so my uh, husband and I were like, oh God, that's really depressing. <laughs> and we were supposed to get married that summer in California, but we were like, I bet we're not going to get to go to California this summer. So we just got married in our house over Zoom. Holy shit. But you know, it's crazy. The first question I wanted to ask you about was about Bombay Beach Lit Fest because Bombay oh, wow. Beach is one of my favorite places to ever go to. And what's so strange about it is I, I went there for the first time about 10 years ago. And I just remember thinking I was on the edge of the world. Like I felt like I was just mm-hmm. as far out as you could be. I remember going to the ski lodge, the bar yeah, there, yeah, right? It's awesome. It's one of the greatest bar on earth. <laughs> I totally, totally agree. And, but the funny part is, is I just remember being there at that time and thinking, nobody would ever come here. This is just as far away from civilization as you can get. And like, I'd say over the years, it's become somewhat of, I wouldn't say a hotspot, but it's become somewhat of a destination. Oh yeah. It's changed a lot since, since we kind of first, you know, came upon it. Um, I mean, uh, it turns out, I guess it's been, um, you know, it's been on the arts radar since before 2016, because that's when they started, um, you know, having like the annual festival there, but, um, but we discovered it around that time. We were not familiar with the fact that it was already kind of an outsider artist hub and, you know, had just decided to go see the Salton Sea because my friend Todd Goldberg, who I had published one of his, uh, two of his books actually, but one of them, um, had some stories set in the Salton Sea and the cover was taken, uh, the photograph was taken at the Salton Sea. And so I was just like, what is this place? <laughs> so we set out to find it and we came across Bombay Beach and the ski in was the first place that we went in and it just kind of fell in love with the town. Um, in fact, we were 
recently even like kind of momentarily deranged that we were thinking about buying property there and then i've actually looked at property there and you can buy some of those plots for like twenty five thousand dollars you can and and it's like i think it you know i think it is a really good investment and that we would love to do it because we just love the town and uh my husband lived there for a short while really um, in 2017 yeah he uh he just went and rented a trailer and did like a you know like a few months for writing and so forth um and he loved it and got very integrated into the community oh, that's really so awesome quickly. Um, and I went out there and saw him while he was there. And while I was there, there was like some impromptu music festival, like put on by the locals. And it was just, it, it's just kind of a weirdly magical place. So we were looking at real estate there too, but um, it doesn't make sense for us because we have a place um, that my husband has owned for about 20 years. That's in, um, in the desert near Joshua tree. Mm. And so we, you know, we already have like a, a place in that region when we live in Chicago. So it's like, we really do not need two places in California that we're not at full time. So we, we had to be like, okay, no, we'll have to just, you know, continue to rent. Absolutely. And even if you lived in Bombay beach, you would have to drive back to Palm Springs, which is like almost like a 40 minute drive to buy food. So it <laughs> doesn't make any sense. Yeah, your basic necessities out there. And I think, you know, you really kind of want to be there a lot of the time in order to make it worth it, which, you know, wouldn't be possible right now. Absolutely. And I guess just for the, uh, for the listeners, like Bombay Beach and the Salton Sea, it's this big, massive man-made lake that I'm not sure why, but it seems like the lake gets populated with fish and then all the fish die and their bones become like part of the sand. Yeah, it's it's a it's the biggest environmental disaster in California, basically. <laughs> um, and, and Sonny Bono was its, you know, kind of its core champion. So he's like the patron saint of Bombay Beach. Um, I guess there is some kind of plan in place now um, in the state of California where they they have some kind of like long term plan for what they're going to do to prevent the toxicity from spreading all the way to places like Palm Springs and so forth. Um, but I I'm not sure of all the specifics of it or like how successful it's going to be. It's been you know it's been a, a cultural and environmental issue for so many years. I mean it used to be you know the the Riviera of California so to speak. You know I'm. Mean, the rat pack hung out there and everything, <laughs> and, you know, there were like all like steakhouses and bars everywhere. But, you know, then when at least I don't know how many people live there now that more artists have bought property. But um, when when we first started going there, I think there were like 230 people who were residents, you know, a, after a, having one time been like this hot vacation destination. So it's a really surreal place. We wanted to have a festival there, you know, like a literary festival there. Like we just wanted it to be all free, all like just kind of, you know, open the town for seven days for both, you know, people who visit it because a lot of people are visiting, you know, to see the art. There's a lot of amazing art there, like big, a big giant sculpture by Randy Palumbo and so forth. So, you know, for the people who live in the town um, and wanting to kind of, you know, just integrate the the people who live in the town and the people who come to visit the town and everything for, you know under like a free umbrella 
we did a lot of work for it and it had gotten some press in California and the LA times and the desert sun and so forth. And so it was really crushing to have to cancel uh. it. There were so many people involved and, um, you know, we were all just really disappointed, but maybe again, someday. I remember the last time I was there, I feel like most of that Lake had started to dry up. And I just remember well, thinking yeah. like, damn, I hope. And I, and, uh, I would say like this kind of artist vibes was just starting to happen. So, you know, you saw like some of the houses seem to be like turning into installations and it just seems so like ripe and promising. And I think like Joshua Tree is slowly getting like priced out and it just, I don't know, it seemed oh, yeah. just so perfect. So I, I truly do hope that it, it happens and especially if there's a lit festival there. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think that it, it basically because the the primary long-term residents of the town are made, like dominantly senior citizens, right, you know, right. so uh, and have been there for a really long time. And, you know, so I think the town will survive because the arts community is bringing in younger people. Um, and obviously there are mixed feelings among the residents yeah, about whether yeah. this is a great thing or an absolutely terrible thing. Um, but, but it's definitely, since you've been there, it sounds like it's exploded a lot more because I mean, the, the beach now has just like a lot of installations in the water, on the sand. Um, you know, it's definitely, it's like walking through, you know, just a, a, a piece of art, you know, I mean, like you walk through the town and, there are just things everywhere, you know, like sort of this drive-in theater with all these busted out old cars. Oh, wow. that, and there's, you know, I mean, it's just amazing, actually. It's 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 incredible. I don't know if you've been, um, been to uh, East Jesus, but um, which is like near Slab City. So no, sort of have... like not far away, but Slab City I is, know Slab um, City. you know, yeah. And, and so East Jesus is like, really, it is sort of an outdoor outsider art museum. So, I mean, like East Jesus has some people who live there, but I think they're the people who who are, you know, who attend to the art. Um, so it's not per se a town like, mm. you know, like Bombay Beach, but, um, but it's just, it's one of the most incredible places I've ever been. The art is just astonishing and weird. And, um, and so Bombay Beach is starting, I think more and more to, you know, get that kind of vibe, just walking down the street. It's like, you're, you're in an art museum that's kind of alive and always changing. Oh my God. That sounds so exciting. I think once this void that we're living through is over, that'll be one of my first stops. Yeah. Yeah. You should definitely go back and check it out if you liked it before. Um, you know, there are more tourists now, know, so, you know, it's know. Like you have the sense of like, oh, wow, I just discovered, you know, this place at the end of the world. Like that's kind of gone. Know. You know, you'll be sitting on the beach and you see some other, you know, clearly like from LA or something, young couple walking down <laughs> the beach and you're like, what are they doing here? And then you're like, wait, what, are, what am I, I doing know, here? I know. <laughs> I, I even felt it last time I was there. I was just kind of like, damn, there's so many big hats and like funky sunglasses and like minimalist yeah. tattoos happening. I was like, ah, fuck. I never thought that this crowd would be attracted to this part of the world, but I guess it makes sense. And and they're investing a lot of money into the town, you know, which is, I mean, it's kind of cool. I mean, they're cleaning up a lot of aspects of the town. They're planting things, you know, they're fixing up houses. So, you know, so I, I think it's, it's good because otherwise eventually the town was not going to survive. Like, I mean, the, the population would just 
have continued to dwindle and dwindle and dwindle. And certainly like there would be fewer and fewer services instead of the possibility of more. So it's kind of exciting, but also, you know, just, just interesting to see the way anything is when it gentrifies or, you know, I'm not sure that's the right word because nobody in Bombay beach, generally those people own their homes. So they're not renting. So I don't, I don't know if, um, if gentrification is the right word in that situation, but yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of complex and interesting. And, you know, I always try to get out there when I'm in California. Oh, likewise. And I think this might be a good segue into talking about you and your book, because I've always considered Bombay beach to be designed as this place you can escape into, but I also think that blow your house down as a meditation, not only on the idea of escape, but also as a re-entry into love, middle age, health, family, and domestic life. So before we get into the specifics of your book, I want to know what placed you outside of yourself as a child before you discovered books and writing? What was your greatest escape? I discovered writing when I was, um, when I was four years old. I mean, oh, wow. before I could even write. I mean, I used to dictate stories to my mom when I was really little and I would illustrate them and we'd staple them together. I started trying to write my first novel when I was about 10 years old. What was it about? And, um, it was about these four orphans, Genevieve, Karen, Patrick, and Frank. And, um, <laughs> and they lived in an orphanage and then they were adopted by a family called the Clemsons. And first they adopted Genevieve, but she was depressed because she wanted to be with Karen. And, and Karen was depressed because she wanted to be with Patrick. And Patrick was depressed because he wanted to be with Frank. And so eventually the Clemsons got stuck with all four of them. And it was just about their various <laughs> and so forth. And um, I wrote four of these novels novels about them um, between the ages of 10 and, and 15. And then, you know, basically got a, a driver's license and started going out and <laughs> right again for like four years. So <laughs> Right, right. But it's weird how um, intense that childhood book is, because I remember when I was around 10 or 12, I had a was also trying to write a book and it was about a devil that like fell out of the sky into a town and his feet got embedded or the like imprint of his feet got embedded into the concrete and it made the town sick. And I look back on that and I'm like, what the fuck was I thinking? Like, what is a strange Like, thing. it's an interesting idea. Well, also just like, how was I like depressed or something? Like, and also like your drama about orphans and, and ownership. It's so like, Whoa, what was going on in our childhoods? That oh, was well, I mean, come on, every childhood book is is um, you know, grisly as hell. Like, I mean, if you only read children's literature, you would literally think that like 60% of the population were orphans, you know. Children's <laughs> yeah. literature is obsessed with you know, everyone's parents being dead. You You're know? right. It's sort of like because that clears the playing field for adventure, I guess. Like there's mm -hmm. nobody to regulate the kids, you know? So instead of Miss Offmore and everyone just going womp, womp, womp and like being in the background, like a lot of people, you know, when they write literature for kids, like they just get rid of the parents. I mean, even Disney. Yeah, yeah, totally. The parents. <laughs> Who, did you have a favorite like childhood author that wrote in that vein? Oh, you know, my, my favorite book when I was a, a kid was called The Changeling. Yeah. Um, and it was about, I let me see if I'm going to get the writer's name right in terms of pronunciation. It was Zilpha Keatley Schneider. 
And she did write other books, but she certainly wasn't like, you know, wildly famous. I mean, she wasn't, you know, Judy Bloom or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And her other books were good, but The Changeling was like my heart when I was a kid. I mean, I read that book over and over again. It was about the best friendship between these two girls who were very opposite from each other. And, um, you know, in my mind, they seemed a lot like myself and my best friend, Alicia, growing up. And so, you know, we were both really wedded to the, the changeling. Yeah, I mean, that sounds about right. My favorite was John Bellers. And I think they made a movie with um, Jack Black out of one of his books, but he also never got big. And the book that got me as a child was, I think it was called The, the Spell of a Sorcerer's Skull. And it was about this kid who was an orphan. And God, he lived in New England and he was friends with this old man and they would drink brandy together, which is <laughs> looking back kind of strange. But anyway, they would hang out together. Like 70s or 80s, you know, that that's like, yeah, were they were very different. Yeah, this is this is like if I had to give this book a texture, it'd be corduroy. But um, yeah, and I think like they go to like some hotel together and he steals a, a tiny little skull from a dollhouse or something and it starts to haunt him and they go on this like very like gothic detective adventure together and i just remember it was just it blew my imagination wide open it was one of my first like i wouldn't say literary loves but it was definitely like what got me into this this medium that we're talking about right now yeah yeah i mean actually i'm trying to think of it if it was called something like the teddy bear mystery or something i'm not sure of the title but um my husband's favorite childhood book was uh, literally about like someone had hidden drugs inside a teddy bear and like the kid <laughs> owned it had no idea but like people were trying to get him or something like i don't know if i'm getting that right i've never read the book but like <laughs> but but i know that there was you know, there were basically like illicit substances hidden inside a teddy bear which is like <laughs> I don't think you'd find a publisher really easily for that book now. But. <laughs> no, that sounds amazing. But, you know, keeping on this, like this train of thought about escape, I guess, you know, to start the conversation, there was one line that stood out to me from your book that, but it goes, I wanted to be Sabina from the unbearable lightness of being. I wanted a life based on betrayals and escapes. And for a time, I created some sexy facsimile of that. Although I felt it unraveling in my fingers, even as I clutched it ferociously. Tell me about that. I love that line. And I think it's kind of like the the heartbeat that runs throughout the entire text in a way. I, I think there's truth to that. I mean, you know, uh, Blow Your House Down is about a lot of things, but, um, but one of the things that it certainly is about, I guess, is the, is the struggle between, um, kind of our our innate natures or what we need as individuals versus our connections to other people and and what we owe others you know and mm. I think when I was growing up, um, you know, when I was say 19, 20, 21, like I, I never planned to get married. Um, I, I wanted to lead a very, very different kind of life than I had led growing up in my inner city Chicago neighborhood where it was not uncommon. I mean, you know, to get married at 14, 15, 16, like everyone was married by the time they were 20, like in my friends' parents' generations. And, um, and, you know, nobody, most of the girls of that, you know, my my parents' generation and so forth hadn't fi- finished high school. No one had gone to college. And, you know, so 
I just wanted a very different kind of life. And I started reading books voraciously and I fell in love with um, the unbearable lightness of being in early college. And, you know, I wanted to be Sabina. I wanted to be Anna Eastman. I wanted to like go live abroad and like, you know, have adventures and lovers and so forth. And, but at the same point, I had grown up in this incredibly close knit family. I mean, I was really, really close to my parents, um, you know, my entire life. And, you know, and I had had the same best friends since I was 10 years old. And, you know, so there was the side of me that was, you know, deeply connected with roots and loyalty. And so, you know, maybe surprising to no one but me, I ended up getting coupled off quite young, you know, right out of college and, and you know, being in a relationship that then led to a marriage that lasted 25 years um, before, essentially, you know, before the things that happened in the book happened where I, I blow my house down. <laughs> so, um, you know, so I think it was, you know, that was always just a strain within me of kind of like the, the push and pull of freedom of, you know, what I guess would in a new agey sense be called like self-actualization between, you know, awakenings, growth, um, you know, versus the things that are expected of kind of a middle-aged woman when she's married and has several kids and has her elderly sick parents living downstairs and, you know, has kind of become a caregiver to so many people. It, it just, you know, those worlds started to diverge, you know, that, that part of me, I guess, just started to awaken again in my forties, particularly after, um, a friend of mine, a very close friend of mine died. And as that kind of thing does, you know, makes you really look at your life, um, more closely and, and see things you hadn't seen before. Well, tell me about the process of writing this book, because when I read it, I mean, it felt a lot of things that the, the ice cubes in my glass have already melted, but, the, the same stiff drink that I made myself when I finished it. I just poured myself another one before this conversation because the book is so intense. But I also thought there was something very, there was a very emotive core to the center of it. And it's about re-entering a life that would lead you back to yourself or a self that you wanted to become. So I guess, tell me about that. I mean, I'm predominantly a fiction writer. Blow Your House Down is my first, um, my first book of, of nonfiction. And, and, you know, I'd written a lot of personal essays. I'd written a lot of journalism, you know, for 20 years before this book came out, but my four other books are, are, are fiction. And, um, you know, I, didn't really have any plans to write a memoir. Um, I did have kind of a vague plan that at some point I might compile the essays I had written about my parents and, you know, do a book of essays kind of about, you know, my parents, my youth, taking care of my parents as they got older, et cetera. But in 2015, uh, you know, I, I was, you know, ending my marriage, my father died and I got diagnosed with breast cancer and some other things happened too, you know, that are, that are in the book and so forth. But, um, it was just a, a really crazy, intense year full of tumult. And, and then, you know, the next year was certainly no better as that was, you know, the year that I was then going through cancer treatments and my divorce was finalized and all of these things were happening. And of course, Donald Trump was elected. So during these two years of, of my life, I just, um, the part of my brain that had, you know, really quite literally been operating like 
constantly making up stories since I was, as I said, four years old, you know, that had always been kind of spinning fiction and, and, you know, that always had plans for like the next three novels, the next 10 stories. Like I was always a million steps ahead of myself. And I started going through a period for a couple of years where I just like, I not only couldn't write fiction, I couldn't even think about it. Um, It was hard for me to even read fiction. I started reading a lot of memoir. Um, You know, it, it just was like, a part of my brain was turned off and another part got turned on. And so I started writing um, some things kind of just privately for myself about what I was going through in my life. And, you know, with no real intentions to, I thought maybe I'd get an essay out of it, but it was, you know, growing much longer than an essay. And, you know, I was just doing that privately. And then I was like, okay, well, why don't I put together that collection about my parents that I've always planned to do. And so I started compiling all the essays I had published about them. And the thing is, is, you know, and I've been an editor for many years, and this is something I always told my writers, but, um, you know, what works in short form is not the same thing as what works in a book. So in each piece about my parents, Um, I would have to introduce my parents to the reading audience all over again because they were all self-contained essays that had been published in different publications. And so when I put them all together, um, there was a lot of repetition. And even the things that were not repetitive in terms of actual, you know, like, oh, you've said that before. Um, A lot of it covered the same ground, you know, the deterioration of my parents, um, my intimacy with them, my, you know, my conflicted feelings about their, you know, their aging and my role as a caregiver and all of these things um, and, you know, memories of the old neighborhood. So, you know, I realized it wasn't going to work to do that as an essay collection that, you know, that they were too much all in the same vein. And so I tossed all but a, you know, a couple of that were my favorites out and was like, okay, you know, if you're going to do a book, like here's where it, here's where you begin, but there is nothing else in this book, you know? And so then, um, that kind of coincided with, I, I did a reading, um, in Chicago where I read a little bit from, the stuff I'd been working on in private and the response was very strong. And so after that, I actually brought myself to show 50 pages of it to my writing group. And they were all like, you know, yeah, this is part of the book. Like this is, you have to, you know, include this. This is all of the same piece as the stuff about your parents. And so, you know, so then it was the process of almost kind of throwing together every essay I had ever written and figuring out like what ground needed to be covered and then throwing almost all of it out and then writing it sort of afresh, but the original version um, was nonlinear and was still very much an essay collection. And it was that way when I, when I sold it and my editor, Dan Smetanka said, you know, I feel like there are really strong story arcs going on here and, and, you know, we're sort of unnecessarily confusing the reader by not knowing where they are in time. Like, why don't we try to parse this out and make it as chronological as possible? And once I did that, I, I found more repetitions and got rid of them and wrote into those blank spaces as well. Um, you know, and next you know, I, I had a book, so. <laughs> yeah. And I guess let's like dig into that. Cause you use a few devices within this book to carry this narrative across and carry this idea of rebirth and escape. But one of the things that stood out to me is this composite character you had named Angie. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I, I really, you know, 
I really wanted to have a space in the book. So as a novelist, I wanted there to be a space in the book in which the reader could get to know the context of my earlier life. So mm. not all fiction writers, um, you know, short story writers or novelists include a lot of backstory for their characters, but I always do and did, you know, so I would never really write about a fictional character without contextualizing their background and kind of showing like, well, where do their demons come from? Where do their desires come from? Like, you know, who who is this person in the context of their life? So I wanted to be able to show that about myself as a character, because that's what you become when you are writing a memoir is like, you're now the character on the page. You're the, you're the protagonist. But I didn't want to um, just give very literal fact by fact details about the childhoods of, of, you know, exact specific people in my life, you know, particularly because some of their childhoods had been quite abusive and, and really difficult. Um, and it was not, you know, I didn't want to write about that um, in, in a literal way and sort of have it be them on the page. So I ended up deciding to make Angie um, a composite character. She's based on three different girls from my youth. Um, and, you know, so the material gets tweaked. Things are not necessarily like in order or they didn't all happen to the same person. But the impact on me as the main character remains the same. You know, so I had these impressions as a result of things that had happened to various other girls in my youth. And instead, in the book, I, I consolidate them into one character. And essentially, it had to do with um, two major things. One is sort of like growing up very envious of what I perceived as, you know, I guess like the tough girls in my neighborhood. It was a, you know, very urban, um, you know, inner city Chicago neighborhood where most people were below the poverty line, including my parents and, and, you know, toughness was really valued. And, and, you know, I was this bookish kid who got migraines and like sat in the house writing novels on butcher block paper and I did not fit in. And so I would have this adulation of these girls who I saw as like, you know, the tomboys, the ones who fit in, et cetera. Um, and, then also the formation of like my sexuality, my like sort of coming of age sexually that was very influenced by the lives of my friends. Um, and so, you know, so yeah, I wanted there to be backstory about me and how it impacted me, but I ended up taking a lot of inspiration in that section from Maxine Hong Kingston's The Woman Warrior, where she begins um, her book. And this is written in 1971 or so before, um, you know, before creative nonfiction was even a very popular genre at all. But it won the National Book Award um, for nonfiction. She begins with a story about um, her father's sister in China, who may or may not have existed who may or may not have gotten pregnant out of wedlock. It may or may not have been a love affair versus a rape. And then she may or may not have drowned herself and the baby in the well. And wow. this is a story that, that, that Maxine Hong Kingston opens up with. And the whole point is not like, 
did she really have this aunt? Did this really happen to the aunt? Oh, wow, we need like a fact checker to run to China and find out about the aunt. The point of the story is all about like, well, how did this impact Maxine Hong Kingston, our lens, our narrator? And right. so that's what I was kind of doing with the section about Angie, where it was like, it doesn't really literally matter, you know, if this girl ran away from home or that girl ran away from home. What matters is what I thought of that, how that made me feel like how I grew up sort of first in the shadow of, of these various girls who I thought of as, as just entirely enviable really when I was young. And then later realized that most of their lives had actually been very, very difficult and, and quite, sad in many ways and that I had been blind to that based on kind of the ethos of my neighborhood. And by the time I realized it and really could put that together, there had been certain psychological facets that were formed in me based on like old ideas that that now I intellectually knew better than, but that continued to kind of shape me. I did really enjoy how you used Angie almost as this this lens or this primer between the way your life was and then the way it became. And it does also remind me about the kids that you looked up to when you were in high school or when you were a teenager that almost, at least in my <laughs> instance, which I think relates to yours, they just seemed feral. They seemed like they were able, they had autonomy that I didn't have. They were able to do whatever they wanted. And it was like all I wanted as a child. But then as adulthood <laughs> comes around and, you know, I think it, uh, it takes a piece of out of all of us in different ways, you look at their lives and you're like, oh, fuck, that was. Yeah, you're like, oh, wow, I couldn't do everything I wanted because my parents actually like wanted to pay attention to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, it changes it changes the lens. Right. You know, I mean, absolutely. You're and feral is the exact right description, like the kids who are, you know, who kind of run the neighborhood or run the town. If you're from a small town, tend to be the kids who are not being that closely looked after and whose lives at home are really problematic. And, you know, I mean, I grew up very poor, but my parents were incredibly loving and, and, you know, just always, you know, always very devoted to me. And when I was a kid, I mean, I saw that largely as an albatross and my mother wasn't Italian and everyone in my neighborhood was either Italian or Puerto Rican, except for my mother. And, um, and so, you know, she just seemed quite aberrant to me when I was a kid. Um, (laughs) Like she was too mother goose. She was too involved. She had rules. She, you know, she wanted to like, have like know all my friends and know what we were doing. And now of course, you know, even long before I had kids of my own, I was like, Oh yeah, that she, she wanted to parent me. Okay. Like I, I get it now, but dare you know. she. <laughs> so yeah. Especially because it seems like your father was very eccentric, right? Oh, my father was super eccentric. He was also really devoted to to me as well, but he was a very different type of person. I mean, first of all, he was born in 1921. He was nearly 50 years old when I was born. Um, Wow, no shit. He was of a very different era. I mean, he left school when he he hadn't even graduated from the eighth grade. He left school to go work at a factory. He was the youngest 
of seven brothers, um, you know, one of whom had been born in Italy and brought over on the boat with his mother, um, you know, two died in the influenza epidemic and he was named after one of them. So he was just really of a very different era. And he, he suffered from mental illness. Um, you know, I don't have a name or a label for what my father struggled with because he didn't really get adequate medical intervention. He also seems like it was very circumstantial as well. I mean, he seems like he's gone through so much that there's like no context for. It's interesting. I mean, like, so he had what used to be called a nervous breakdown um, after the death of his, um, of one of his older brothers with whom he shared a bar. Um, And, you know, and of course, a nervous breakdown is not a term that has any meaning these days, right? You know, but he, right. he was institutionalized at that time. He spent, you know, some time in the institution. I think it was about a month. Um, it may have been longer. And and then, you know, after that, he was fine. Um, you know, I say fine in a drawn out way with a question mark at the end of it, because he was never, you know, you would never describe my father as like super well adjusted. I mean, he he would like, he slept in the living room. He, because he thought burglars were going to break into the house. He had like 47 locks on our front door. I mean, we lived in a neighborhood where no one had anything, like no one was going to rob us, you know? So, so it was, um, you know, he was, he was very eccentric. He was eccentric in other really kind of cool ways too. Like he knew everything about jazz. Um, Um, He was, you know, into foreign films and like into things that others in the neighborhood weren't into. He loved, you know, he loved all things British. He would, you know, he would wear tweed jackets and bright red socks when like everyone else was wearing like a V-neck white t-shirt and like jeans, you know I mean? So he would, he always wore a cap of some kind. I mean, so he was just a very eccentric character. Um, And, you know, but as he got older, um, you know, he had a lot of physical health problems and he was on a lot of medications and his mental health problems definitely started to become exacerbated with age and with medication and with illness. And so, you know, towards the end of his life, he was a very different person than the person that I had grown up with. You know, he made and he, you know, he thought that, you know, he thought he would see people in his room. He thought that his closet had flooded, you know, he, he, he had a lot of um, beliefs by the end that, you know, you couldn't quite shake him of um, that, you know, were not the way he was when I was a kid. It's almost like that mania, like broke something in him. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, you know, I mean, I think, um, I think when you have a lot of medical issues and you're on a lot of very strong medications, it probably makes it hard for psychiatric medications, which he did eventually get on. Um, but to, to work, like he was also on steroids for at least 10 years because he had, um, a condition where the arteries in his brain would basically like explode if he didn't, take these steroids, you know, so, so he was on those for a long time. He was on um, Norco for, you know, like spinal stenosis and problems with his, you know, his legs and, and so forth, you know, so at a certain point he was just sort of, you know, he was a, a, a medical cocktail and, and I think, you know, all bets were off. No, he was a, a true American, I guess, in the end, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I suppose you could say that, considering <laughs> our situation. But um, but yeah, so, and my mom, you know, my, he and my mom were married. Um, they got married in, I think, well, they met in 1957, married in 1961, and, you know, had a really complex marriage. I mean, they, you know, they loved each other very much, but, you know, I think my mother 
for most of her adult life, you know, that she was with him, you know, she had spent a long time on the precipice of, of leaving the marriage and, and never did. And, you know, then they did grow old together and there was a beauty in that, you know, but I think there were also for her many regrets about like the life, the lives that she hadn't been able to live, you know? And so I sort of grew up a little bit under that shadow as well, you know, if that makes sense. No, that I was about to say that actually, makes a lot of sense because once again, just to bring it back, I think that element of escape is such a, it's such a central theme in the book. And I just wonder if like the process of writing this has taken you to the precipice of a place that has given you more insight to yourself and maybe like a sense of peace that I think maybe your mother didn't have that and possibly that your father also didn't have that you saw that made you want to act out or break free or write this memoir? You get asked a lot whether like writing a memoir is cathartic, like in various contexts, various forms. Of course. Yeah. Um, And, and I, I wouldn't say that it is, I mean, it stirs up a lot, you know, it stirs up a lot of things that maybe you'd rather not look at or think about, or that you, you know, try to kind of push down. Um, But you do, I think, invariably learn a lot about yourself from, the writing of it, you know, you learn to draw connections because that's what making art is about is kind of finding connections between things um, that you don't necessarily link in your mind when you're leading your day-to-day life. So, so definitely the fact that, you know, I loved my father very much, but it had long been my opinion that my mother should have left my father, Mm -hmm. you know, so, and, and that I, I was very saddened for most of my life. I mean, even before I was 18 by what I saw as, you know, my mother having led an extremely small life that didn't quite suit her and that she was a sad person in many ways. She became less sad when she was elderly, oddly enough, even though she had a lot of health problems, but, um, but that, you know, during my youth, she, you know, she had a lot of, um, she had a lot of grief and sadness about, you know, her own unresolved issues and about things that she had never done and things that she would never do. And, you know, I think that there just came a point for me where I knew I wanted to, I knew I wanted to have a different life than the one I was in. And maybe if my mother had been a person who like many mothers of the seventies had gotten a divorce and had, you know, run off and led a wild life or something like that, maybe I would have had the opposite impulse, but because I had grown up sort of under the shadow of my mother's regrets, I think like that led to me feeling like I would rather regret things I did than things I didn't do. You know, you bring up this idea of catharsis and it's something that gets asked a lot. And on this show, it's something that has either come up through the author or it's something that I've kind of wondered. I think the biggest question has been, what is catharsis? Like, what do you, what does it mean to you? I don't even know if I'm the right person to answer that question because my position probably is that I don't think writing memoirs is cathartic. You know, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a different thing. I mean, like writing a diary is maybe cathartic, you know, I don't think I would be inclined to define it. I mean, I, it's not, it didn't have a lot to do with my experience of writing this, this particular book. Um, you know, 
it, it's something I've experienced occasionally in therapy, but I think that, you know, often too catharsis is momentary because we're always changing. So you have like some big epiphany and, you know, you think like, okay, now I know this thing. Now I understand. And, you know, in two years, your understanding of it is different. So, I mean, I think we're just always, we're always evolving. We're always changing. And, and the idea of catharsis is too much to me, like, something finally being wrapped up in a bow. And I just don't think that that happens for, for most people. You know, I'm just kind of just thinking about my, my own life here. I'm not trying to uh, project anything onto you, but two things stand out to me. One is that to me, I guess catharsis is that you can put some sort of closure to something in your life Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. made it seem like you couldn't progress or you couldn't move forward. So you either have a reason for why this thing happened, or you just have some sort of resolution to being like, well, this fucked up thing happened to me. I'm able to move on. This isn't crippling me. This isn't eating me up every day. And the second part is, is something also that I thought about while I was reading your book that I I would love to hear just more about is the fact that you used to be a therapist. So I'm just very curious about that time and like, what did you specialize in and what did you learn from it? It does feel as though you've incorporated some of that training into this book. Yes, there's a lot of questions there. So basically, um, you know, so just to kind of go back to that idea of catharsis, which came with a couple of words that you said, resolution, closure. Um, I am really in favor of, of course, not waking up every day tormented by the same thing for all of eternity. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of being able to, you know, to, to move on and go on with your life. But I think that, um you know, I'm not sure how much I believe in, you know, in, in total closure and resolution about things either. I think we have to make a choice to go on despite the fact that closure and resolution are not always available. Sometimes they are, you know, sometimes you have a fight with somebody, you stew about it for a year. My, my best guy friend, Tom and I once in college had a, a an absolutely bizarre and, and, you know, ridiculous fight and didn't speak for a year and a half. And, you know, then we made up. And of course, like, I guess in that sense, okay, it was cathartic. That was, it had resolution. It, you know, it, we had had closure. We're still, super close today. I just talked to him today, you know, so, so in some cases, yes, but in other, you know, in other cases, I think the harder thing is like that often you have to move on without those kind of neat labels. Like you have to move on and keep living your life and growing and, and being a a person who's alive in the world and not living in the past or not numbed out, but you know, you may never really get that that closure. And also, you know, I don't think that we ever get the clear, like A plus B equals C and therefore D, you know, resolution. Like it's one of the jobs of of an artist or a writer to kind of draw possible um, links between things and, and certainly like going down the rabbit hole of my brain and, and like exploring what some of those links may have been was really interesting to me and, and definitely made me think about some things in, in new ways, but, you know, but also nothing is only because of one thing, 
you know, so, so it's like, you know, you can say, oh, this is because of my relationship with Angie, or this is because of my relationship with my mother. And it's like, okay, yeah, part of it. Yeah, that that's true. But there's 40 other things that it's because of also that, you know, that I may never identify or know, you know, so, um, and I think, you know, yeah, I was a therapist and, um, you know, I, my specialization, I worked first at a, a, an agency for what was then called battered women. I would, you know, we would now say domestic violence. Um, Mm -hmm. and I ran groups, um, and saw individual clients and it was, you know, to give you, I guess, some context for my saying, like, you don't always have closure. You don't always have resolution. You know, you don't always have catharsis. Like, I mean, I had a client who literally had a, 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 a child by her father as a result of, of rape. You know, I had another client who had been held captive in a, like a cabin in the woods for more than a year by her ex-husband, um, you know, who would like taunt her by lighting dynamite next to her head. You know I mean? Like I saw some very, very extreme things when I was a therapist and, you know, and then I moved on from that to um, working in uh, I started a women's wellness center in a hospital in a prison town in, in, um, in Windsor, Vermont, and, you know, heard a bunch of things there. And then I worked for a, uh, a foster care agency. And, um, you know, I, I actually, because those people were kids, like I, I won't even give examples right now of like some of the things that I heard from them, but they were even more horrific than the things I heard from my adult clients. And so, you know, I think as a therapist, like my, understanding and belief system is like, you know, you don't ever find like a magic key where you just get over all that, you know, you just have right. to find a way to, to live, you know, you have to find a way to, to be alive and to make yourself open to joy, you know, despite things or alongside things. And, you know, and it's similar to like, I have a very, very close friend and business partner who, um, who lost her almost three-year-old son to Tay-Sachs. And it's like, you know, you don't wake up one day and you're healed. You know, she has a, a second child now, but it's like that didn't cause the pain of losing this first child to go away, you know? And, and I grew up with a grandmother who, um, who lost five of her seven children while she was still living, you know, some as children and some as adults and, you know, and, and she was really marked, you know, so I think everything that happens to us marks us and we, you know, we integrate that into who we become and there are healthy ways to integrate it and less healthy ways to integrate it. But I'm not sure as a therapist, as a fiction writer, as a nonfiction writer, or as a person that I really believe that we ever just like close a door and, and, and now that's just healed and gone you know i think it's all integration and and kind of having to choose what we'll do with it acceptance is just such a huge part of life especially as you get older and so many doors start to shut around you but i do wonder what you think about the idea of transgression because to me so much of this book is about reinvention through ruin in a way and not to like make it seem too dramatic but I do think that there is an essence of transgression that is an experience that happens both in your reality and on the page. So I wonder if that rings true to you. And does that seem like something that was incredibly beneficial to you? Because so much about this book and about this experience in your life is about 
slashing and burning and just hoping that through the ashes of your old life, that something new will come of it, but you must have no choice, but to just destroy everything or you end up in this cyclical loop. So there's almost like something, I don't know, I have to, maybe I'm projecting here, but it almost seems like there was like a, something punk rock about this. <laughs> Well, my, my husband's a punk musician, so that's, um, so that's funny. Um, but I, so, um, but in any case, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I would, I, I don't know if I would call it punk rock, but I, I definitely, you know, I, I ended up in a period of my life where a lot of things where a lot of things had to come out of ruin. Yes. Um, and some of those things, came out of ruin that I had at least had a hand in, you know, um, and then other things came out of things that, you know, were just weird fate, you know, like, like your father happens to die right when you're getting divorced. And then you happen to be diagnosed with breast cancer, like right when all of this is going on. And, and when another relative like dies by suicide and all of these things kind of happen in a convergence and, you know, and, Beauty out of ruin is a thing that I, I believe in and I, and I'm compelled by, I think that. Uh, I think you he know, might be the punk rocker in this relationship after all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think that, um, you know, there are so many things that are used to kind of, to put a period at the end of a person, you know, like we, after we reach a certain age and we get married and we have children and maybe for a woman, you know, now you're in menopause or you've been sick or, you know, there's just all these things at which we, you know, we say, okay, now like that person, like their story is over. Now let's start, you know, someone else's new story. And we're kind of obsessed with, uh, you know, with the fresh story of youth, you know, the, the, the first making. And we're particularly obsessed, I think with like, ways in which people mess up on the on the road to you know to like the happily ever after so for example in the memoir genre there are just many 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 books and some of them are quite wonderful but you know but many books about very young women or teenage girls uh, who go through something very traumatic or who maybe, you know, do sex work or become involved with drugs or something mm. that, you know, that kind of is like, oh, I went this way. And then, you know, okay, I, I, I met someone, I got married, I, you know, I had children and like, and that's the end, right? That's the end of the book. And it's like, but it's not the end of the person's life. And, and so I did definitely, um, you know, I guess if, if there's a, a, a punk ethos to this, like I definitely wanted to kind of challenge that narrative um, that somehow we, you know, we stop having either growth or complex inner lives or new needs or, you know, the ability to screw up or the ability to reinvent and find new beauty, like at some particular designated point in our lives. And I think that the way that um, mothers, that middle-aged women who are, you know, no longer fertile, that people who have been sick, in my case, had a bilateral mastectomy, a hip replacement, like that there are ways we categorize these people that take them outside of what we consider kind of like the vibrant narrative of life, right? You know, and it's like, 
you hear middle-aged women often saying like, I feel invisible. You know, I feel like I've suddenly become right, right. Well, I think we fetishize the, the, the troubles of young women, you know, oh, I think completely. you know, but yeah, I, I, I felt like I knew a lot of middle-aged women whose lives had been upended. I knew a lot of middle-aged women who through divorce, through illness, through the death of a child, through all kinds of different things, you know, um, had had, their lives completely turned upside down and had to emerge as a somewhat different person. And I really was kind of like, where, where are the books about this? Like right, right. years that I was, you know, kind of free falling through my life. I was like, where are these books? You know? And it was like, okay, you can go to the store and buy a book about having breast cancer, or you can go to the store and, you know, buy a book about somebody who has an affair, or you can go to a store and buy like a self-help book about divorce, you know, or about like grieving the death of your parents. But it's like, what about the fact that all of this, it's like, it's like a loud band with many different instruments playing at once. Like, it's not like, oh, here, I'll read this book about this thing, you know, and, and much of it exists in, in the self-help genre, you know, rather than literary genre. I mean, I, I had read certain books about, um, middle age, like Claire Detter's Love and Trouble comes to mind and, you know, and just had felt like, where are the, where are more books like this, you know, and, and, and like, and where are the books where, where things go even more off the rails because that happens like that, you know, if anything, through my experiences, I have learned that my experiences are in no way unique and that these things are happening to, you know, women my age and, you know, all over this country, you know, and so all over the world. Right. Exactly. And like, so where are, where are those memoirs? And I think we're starting to see them, you know, and also like, you know, where are those novels too? Right. You know, so, so I, you know, I I guess you, you write the book you want to read, you know, and Mm -hmm. so I tried to write the book that I, thought I would have needed during the time I was going through all those things. Because my, you know, my feeling about that was, is that like, if I needed a book that I didn't feel like I could find and I didn't feel like, I mean, maybe it existed, but it's, you know, but it wasn't easy to find. It wasn't like well-known. It wasn't like here, here's this book that speaks to your experiences. You know, if I was feeling that way as a, as a writer, as a person who reads a, a ton and knows many other writers, then how does you know, a woman who's not even in the literary community feel in terms of like not seeing her reality mirrored in, you know, the books that she may see being recommended, like, you know, on the Today Show or something like that. And so I wanted, I wanted to write to those people. While you were writing this, was there a moment within the process where you knew that you were writing your way out of a sense of suffering? Or is that just totally like irrelevant? It was not my goal. It was not a thing I thought about. Mm-hmm. Um, I was writing after a certain point where I realized it was going to be a book. I was writing very much with, you know, I was writing to the hypothetical audience of, you know, for the book, for women who are going through similar things um, and, and not identical things necessarily, but similar things. Um, and, you know, I was just trying to contribute to the breaking of silence around certain issues, Um, you know, and I'm certainly not alone in doing that. There are a lot of, you know, writers who are breaking every imaginable silence out there. But, um, but for me, you know, I felt like this, 
there were issues around illness, around body, around, you know, sexual psychology, around infidelity, around divorce, around mothering after great mistakes, you know, like that I could speak to that some of these women who, you know, may read the book or who are reading the book have never been able to talk to anyone about like even their best friends, like, because they feel that they would be so judged. And right. I just wanted, you know, literature makes us feel less alone. Literature yeah. makes us, you know, it, it makes you realize you're not the only one, you know? And I, that was really, you know, it wasn't so much like, I mean, if I wanted to end my suffering, you know, like I, I, I mean, I have been to therapy, but I'd I'd say like I'd go to therapy or I'd go to like a, a really nice spa. You know, like writing is is definitely in no way the way to end your, your suffering, <laughs> but, it, but you know, but it is a way to connect with other people and to be able to say things that some people may feel are unsayable and and make them understand that they're not alone. Yeah, I think that's very well said. I mean, I think knowing you're not the only one is one of the greatest pleasures you can have in life. I mean, I think if anything, maybe it's some core essence of life that you go through and knowing that you're not alone in this deep spiritual way. And I think maybe that's our connection to art and spirituality, but has there been a fundamental difference in the way women and men have interpreted this book? Um, so, I mean, I, I have had some great responses from men and uh, a couple of my, the people who provided blurbs are, are men and so forth. Um, you know, I've, I've gotten some really nice reviews and podcasts and things like that for men, but, um, but yes, I mean, you know, I, I, the number of letters that I've gotten from women mm-hmm. since this book came out, um, you know, I have four other books and I mean, I had gotten more letters about this book before it was even released than I had about all the other four combined. Wow. Um, you know, so people definitely were, you know, wanting to reach out to me and tell me like, you know, you, you said something that reflects my reality and that I've never been able to say, or, you know, that like, you know, you made me believe I could actually write about this and, and, you know, that somebody would publish it or it wouldn't be considered unacceptable or, you know, various different things. Some people are writers, some people are not writers. A lot of the early letters were from people who were also writers because they had gotten like advanced reading copies and things Mm -hmm. like that in the media. Um, But as the book has been out in the world, more and more people have nothing to do with the literary community who I've never met or heard of in any capacity, like have, you know, kind of found me on social media and, you know, reached out and it's been very, very powerful. It's been incredibly powerful because it's why I, you know, it's why I published the book. You know, when I read this book to me, and this is probably like a very (laughs) different reading of it, but I thought of it so much as, as this in-between space where you're thinking about ending one way of life and and transitioning to another one, which is so, it's just so powerful. And I think it happens to a lot of people throughout their lives, especially within middle age, which is something that I'm just, I'm just walking towards. Mm-hmm. And now that we're like in this pandemic and we're kind of slowly getting out of it, we're in this exact same headspace where, I don't know, all the old ways of interacting with people and the ways that we kind of view ourselves are also ending or if not ending they're changing so i think it's like it's coming at a very perfect point in time does it feel that way to you as well 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, of course, like all of this was written and, you know, turned in long before the pandemic, but, um, but, you know, definitely the pandemic has certainly made people who are in situations they don't want to be in, um, mm-hmm. feel ever more alone and ever more depressed, you know? So if you, I mean, we, we have definitely seen that, you know, people who are struggling in their marriages or people, you know, uh, all kinds of people in my case, you know, sort of the ending of a marriage is a major part of my book, but for other people, it may be something else like, okay, you know, you were a person who had a glass of wine every night before, you know, before or after dinner. And now you have been in this pandemic and you're scared and anxious and depressed and it's turned into four glasses of wine. So, I mean, like a lot of people I think have, you know, that's hitting a little close to home there, Gina. (laughs) (laughs) So, but, you know, but I mean, I think, that basically we've just seen many, many stories from people about like, I knew this thing was a little bit wrong and then the pandemic hit and oh my God, it really became way more wrong, right? Because we had movement and noise and distraction and, you know, and so, you know, I think for, for various people, um, the pandemic has made them have to look at, at, at their lives for sure. You know, like you can't, look away when you're trapped in your house with the same people all the time or if you live alone you know like to look around and be like what is this life i've made for myself like are you know are these the people i want to be with during a pandemic or why am i here or you know or why am i by myself like how have i led my life that maybe i might want to change or or you know is being by myself exactly what i would have wanted or you know just right 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 where do you want to be when the chips are down, you know, which Oof. is like a very, I think it can, that it's probably usually the same answer as where you want to be when things are going great. But I think a lot of us only think, particularly when we're young, about like what the good times are going to be like. And right, you know, right. the fact that sometimes the times get really bad, um, you know, that can, that can change things, you know, it's also interesting though, because like, I mean, you know, we've been talking about reinvention a lot and, you know, I do have to say, like, I, I think, um, you know, we reinvent in the sense that like we change, we evolve, we grow. Um, I mean, my title blow your house down, like, you know, of course, like, yeah, I, I blew down a marriage, you know, but, at the same point, like I, I literally still live in the same house and I have the same three kids and I continued to take care of my parents after leaving the marriage. And like, you know, so, and, you know, I have the same friends. And so it's like, you know, that change is mostly an internal change. Like, it's not like you have to pick up and move to, you know, a farmhouse in Tuscany, you know, and, and never talk to anyone from your old life again. Like, I think, you know, change is, is more, I mean, well, sometimes change is also quite dramatic, but, but a lot of change is more subtle than that. You know, it's like, I'm living inside a lot of the same structures of life, but I'm living in them differently. But that almost sometimes feels more intense at least, you know, I'm speaking for myself here, but I must feel like if I had the opportunity to totally change my life, it would be too good. You know what I mean? Like I have, I, it has almost taken me my entire life to recognize the fact that 
it's probably not going to happen at this point. I'm not going to like become a millionaire. I'm not going to like move to Italy. So I think when you, when you truly realize what change is and, and, and how much of that is internal and the fact that when you make these and life adjustments, it's so massive and it's more massive than any of these other like external things that I just, you know, was just talking about that. It must feel more intense. Um, you know, you have to relearn how to be with all the people in your life. Like, I mean, right. if you've been kind of like leading a double life or holding a secret or you do something that comes as a big surprise to a lot of people and then maybe not such a surprise to others. But, you know, but like, you know, we all have to anyone who's been in a long marriage um, that ends knows that it's you have to change a lot of things, even though many of the things in your life remain the same. And it's the same with illness. You know, it's like, I'm still me, but I'm not, you know, I'm not the same as I was before I had cancer, but I also am, you know, it's like, I mean, keep, you keep changing and you keep growing, but the more of that you do in a sense, the more yourself you become. And so there's always those parts of you that, you know, that were important, you know, when you were 10 and are still important now. And some of it is about finding your way back to some of those things, you know, because I think that we get on paths in life, um, sometimes very gendered paths, but, you know, it happens to, to everybody. Like you get on a path in life and it's just sort of like, it becomes your, your hamster's wheel. Like you can't imagine what would happen if you just maybe stopped running and then you stop running and it turns out you can step off a few inches to the side, you know, and it's like the, the whole world doesn't actually collapse. You have to figure out how to live in, in this world without continuing to run on the wheel. Yeah, (laughs) I relate to that a lot. And I guess as a way to kind of close this out, you referenced quite a few films throughout this book. The ones that stood out to me is Exotica and The Unforgiven. And you also referenced The Unbearable Lightness of Being. So I wonder, has there been any stories that you told yourself that became a blueprint for how you hoped you'd make it out and how you hoped you would become after writing this book? Um, I think like for me, the, the biggest film influences in the book had to do with the way that, um, with the way, the endings we give to women. Um, and that is mm. true of literature and film that basically like, you know, when a woman goes wild, when a woman transgresses, when a woman like steps off the wheel, you know, um, almost invariably like something terrible is going to happen right like she's right, going to right. drive off the cliff she's going to she'll be punished stuff. you know right and 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 so you know all of those things like i mean if i look at the french films of the 80s and 90s it really does almost feel as though every woman in every french film dies by suicide in <laughs> you know and I wanted to look more closely at, like, I think that in a way that, like, it it seemed badass in 1990. It seemed like, wow, you know, she's she's burning down the patriarchy. She's not going to stand for it, you know. But after a while, it's like, wow, there's a really large pile of 
dead women in this, you know, in, in our popular culture or popular media. And, you know, there is a big, big area between, and then she lived happily ever after. And then she walked into the river with stones in her pockets and drowned herself, you know, and like, and, and what happens to those of us who don't inhabit either of those things, you know, like you, you, you just have to make your own ending, you know, and, and part of that maybe is realizing that, that, there is not an ending except for of course obviously death you know but that you you just keep you just keep trying to live and and be really awake and alive in your life i think that's a great place to end it gina i want to thank you so much for coming on to wake island this was uh this is really a pleasure well thank you for having me